presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. The silent assassin, Matt Costa here. Science advisor, Matt Moniz is here as well. And we have a special guest in the studio with us, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But first, a bit of a programming note here on Spooky South Coast. We're going to throw it out there right at the start of the show, mainly because I'll forget to mention it later if I don't. Uh, for those of you who listen to WBSM here, uh, you're familiar that they carry the NFL. And starting next week, they'll be carrying Saturday night NFL games for the next three weeks. Uh, for the last three weeks in December, the rest of 2006, there will be a primetime game here on WBSM at 8 o'clock. So naturally, that will preempt Spooky South Coast. But we've uh, we've talked to the station, and and they know that you know everybody wants to hear Spooky South Coast. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a special primetime edition for the next three weeks, uh, starting next week, where we will be on from 6 p.m. to 7:30 p.m. So it'll be a little bit of an abbreviated version of the show, but it'll be in prime time. It'll be a little bit easier, and uh, hopefully, you know, you can hear what we have to say from 6 to 7:30, and then you have a little bit of time to calm down before it's time to go to bed. You know. That's one of the biggest complaints that I hear from people. It's like, I love the show, but I listen to it right before I go to bed, and then it keeps me up for two or three hours. Tell me about it. (laughs) How do you think our guests feel? They're the ones actually out there experiencing this stuff. And, of course, if you've experienced anything, you can feel free to call in and share with us, 508 for Wareham and the Cape. Phone lines are open through the entire show, and you can call in at any time to share your thoughts, your questions, your experiences uh, about the paranormal. Of course, Matt Moniz has 20 years' experience investigating this stuff. He's, uh, he's seen a lot of it. He's heard a lot of it. He's felt a lot of it. And we won't say all, because as soon as we say that, you're going to encounter something you haven't before. But I'm game. <laughs> but uh, he can answer any of your questions, and you know we're here to listen to your stories. That we're not gonna we're not gonna judge you. We're here to believe you. And uh, also, if you don't feel comfortable calling in, you can share your questions and thoughts with us uh, via the internet. Uh, of course, you can email us anytime. Spooky crew at spookysouthcoast.com. And if you go to the spookysouthcoast.com website, click on the message board. You can sign in there as well. Matt Moniz is on the message board right now, ready to talk to you there. And if you'd like to be part of the live chat that's going on, go to the Spirited Society dot is it org? I always mess this up. Matt Costa, you're on it. Uh, it's dot net. Dot net. Spirit yeah. Society dot net. If you go to that website, click on the left hand side underneath the cattle skull. It says chat. Click on there, and you can enter into the live chat room run for us by our friend an Eagles Angel. And is she a spo- is she spooky elf tonight? Is that what she's going by? Yes. Okay. Spooky elf. She's in the holiday spirit. And uh, the silent assassin, Matt Costa, is in there as well, ready to talk to you there. So all different kinds of ways you can get a hold of us. And don't be afraid to to contact us and, and talk to us about the paranormal because we want to hear from you. But that being said, we do have a very special guest in the studio with us tonight. Uh, he is an author who has put out the book Haunted Rhode Island. He also has Haunted New Hampshire and Haunted Massachusetts coming out in 2007. So stay tuned for those. He's Tom D'Agostino. And uh, he is a Rhode Island resident, 
And uh, Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? And usually I would read a bio, a bio of somebody. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I am a native of Rhode Island, born and raised there. And we live presently in Boroughville, which is uh, in the snow belt. That's what they say it is. And I started actually paranormal investigating when I was about 21 years old. I lived in a house that was haunted. And we stayed there about six days. And we were actually driven out. And from there, of course, I went to college and whatnot and got a degree in political science and then started writing books, which is absolutely not related at all. (laughs) (laughs) And I played musical instruments. And we belonged to a group called Paranormal United Research Society, which is a coalition that we hire or call in the best people for the situation involved when somebody calls us or gets in touch with us. Sometimes, you know, it's not me. I'll get other people like I have before and have them do the job that will most suit and help these people who are calling for whatever their needs are. And that's been going now for about a year, and we were part of Rhode Island Paranormal for a few years, but my wife and I, Arlene, have been doing it on our own for about five years, just going to different and helping different people out on different levels. And that is, uh, that's what we try to do here as well. We try to act as uh, kind of like a center point for people that need an investigation or or need somebody to, to come in and at least make them, you know, feel a little bit better about what's going on. And we try to do the same thing, try to put them in touch with the right people. Uh, too many of these groups now uh, are coming out, and I don't, I'm not trying to blast anybody here, but there's a lot of groups that are coming out and they see the success of Ghost Hunters and, and the success that TAPS has had in that genre. And so now they're trying to make it about themselves. So it's always good when we can, you know, talk to somebody that's part of an organization that's making it not about themselves and more about the, the research and the community. Oh, yeah, we definitely. I mean, I've been studying this for years and years and years, and there is a lot of great, really good investigators out there, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a specialist in EVPs or this, that, the other thing, and there are demonologists and whatnot that can do the job, and that's why I started this coalition, so I can call these people when we need them. And, and how do people get in touch with you uh, when they are encountering something? Uh, do they usually just... Because, I mean, you're out there as, as an author first and foremost. And is, so is that somebody that they would normally think of to contact for an investigation? Um, I'm not sure on that one. I do know that I can be reached through Ramtail at cox.net. And also uh, there's Rhode Island Paranormal has a web page where they can, I can be reached on also. And most of the time it, that's where they've been getting in touch with us through that. And do you find, uh, in addition to people looking for... Uh, for an investigation or for help, just people that want to just share their story and have you document it and catalog it for them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, A lot of people just want to make sure they're not crazy or wh- what is happening is either paranormal or not. We've had a lot of cases where obviously nothing has happened or we've solved it. And when that happens, actually, when I act, go into a place or we investigate, we f- actually solve the fact that it wasn't haunted. That's still a win situation also because they're happy, they know. Yeah, and that's got to be the most, for most people, you would think that's got to be the outcome they're looking for, is to find out that it's something, that it can be debunked. Uh, but then, like you said, you do have people that are just looking for attention, or people who are so interested in the paranormal that they want to believe something's paranormal when it isn't. Yeah, a lot of times there's a series of coincidences that make people believe that something is going on, and just the series puts them at fear, and they say, oh, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and you can kind of rationalize it, and after so many years in the business, it's like a detective. You just figure out certain things, you go in, you check out things, and we had one who, a couple who moved from the city, and they moved to the country, 
and their house was haunted every night, two in the morning. They were being awoken, and they were, I mean, it was like terror. So we set up cameras, and we found their ghost. It was their cat. <laughs> in the city, they could never hear this cat running around because of the traffic and whatnot. But in the country, I mean, they could hear a pin drop. <laughs> that that is something that I I know people that have been in a similar situation where, you know, they leave uh, living on a main street all their lives, and then they move out to the dead of nowhere in, in Halifax, Massachusetts, where you know it's all farmland out there, and you know you could go days before you see your nearest neighbor, and uh, just the silence becomes deafening, and you start to hear things in the silence that aren't there because you're just so unaccustomed to it. And that's, uh, you know, it turned out to be an actual paranormal situation. But at the beginning, they were just really freaked out by the silence of it all. Yeah, we yeah, we live out in the same place. We live in the middle of nowhere. And we can actually hear the waterfall down the street. It's so quiet. Wow. That's, that's, that's a nice neighborhood to have, though. <laughs> Especially uh, these days with all the kids running around. I'm, I'm turning into a crotchety old man. I'm not even 30 yet, but I'm turning into a crotchety old man. You kids in your loud music. So, uh, but... So how did you go into from investigating to collecting all of these stories into books? Well, what happened was I, this is funny, I built a van. We had, I bought this camouflage van from a telephone company, and we couldn't repaint it, so we painted it camouflage. And I said, we're going to start going legend tripping. We're going to go like the Dudley Town and this and that. And so we started doing that. I started to going to different places and reading about different places. And at one point, I started cataloging them. And then it, there was so many of them, I realized people are always asking me these questions. I might as well try and write a book. And I did. I wrote a manuscript, and it failed miserably. And so I wrote another one, and I sent it out to about nine publishers, and about the ninth or tenth was Schiffer Publishing, and they said, well, why don't you break it down by state instead of all in New England? And I came up with a better idea. Why don't I make it places that people can actually visit that are haunted? And that's what I was really intrigued about by this book is in addition to, you know, cataloging what the reports are coming from these places and talking about your own experiences there, you also include directions on how to get to them. And if it's a private residence and somebody doesn't want to be bothered, you also put that in there to discourage people who were going to go out and try to find these places anyway. So that's something that a lot of researchers slash authors wouldn't do. They wouldn't reveal where these places are because they kind of want to keep themselves as the exclusive author for it. Yeah, well... I mean, if you look at them, they're there. You know, mm -hmm. people live in neighborhoods. There's a cemetery. You know, there's nine houses around it. I mean, it's not private. I didn't discover these places, like, for the first time. So, <laughs> I, but the basic premise behind it is people have all been there before me. And to share them with other people who want to go, that's great. And you visited each of these yes. areas to, to catalog, obviously, because you said your wife takes all the photos for the book. Right. So you've been there and, and you've uh, checked them all out. Now, do you conduct an actual investigation at each location or is it kind of just like a one-stop trip visit? No, we actually conduct investigations whenever possible, whether they're long, long ones or even just 25 minutes. We a recorder comes right out, EVPs, start going for it, a few meters. We have like a little, my little doctor's bag, little metal box, you know, nice and easy to carry anywhere. And everywhere we go, we, uh, t she takes pictures and I start taking recordings and measurements and whatnot. So it's pretty thorough. And when you go to these places, I mean, do you try, obviously for most of these places being historical landmarks or, or what have you, you set something up with the people in charge of them. But do you find, uh, do you try to go? You know, late at night. I know a lot of people feel that the most paranormal activity happens around 3 a.m. Or do you just try to visit them at any any point in time when you can get there? Yeah, a lot of times. 
according to historical content, like some people say, oh, this, you know, the ghost appears at 9 p.m. We'll try and do that, but that, you know, doesn't always work. So we go whenever we can and hopes we can make it at the time frame that uh, supposedly by legend or lore things were supposed to happen. But basically we to take what we could get and, you know, do the investigation, talk to the people involved and uh, see what they had happened with them. I mean, we've been to tons of them from all over New England. And, and is there a, a difference in the process between doing these investigations for the purpose of a book and doing them as an actual, you know, a paranormal investigation? Is there any kind of a deviation? Do you need to say, well, you know, let's, you know, is it more, are you trying to do the same scientific documentation for the book as you would for a regular investigation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this, it, we try to make everything just like we were doing a four or eight hour investigation. And sometimes we're lucky enough to actually do that. We were in North Adams, Mass, where we were able to do an eight hour investigation in the uh, Houghton Mansion, whereas some places, you know, you're on a tour, they just get out, get out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the, the, the reason why I ask is because for a publisher, I mean, are they looking for, when you're handing them a book about hauntings in Rhode Island, are they looking for, you know, you know, we saw a ghost this night. Uh, is that, are they trying to look for that kind of stuff to happen, or are they are they pleased with the fact that you're presenting it as a scientific documentation? Uh, both, actually. They, they like the fact that uh, we've been to the places, so therefore I can give you a firsthand documentation of what's going on, and that the, I include the history, the legend, the law behind it, the other people who may have witnessed stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, uh, you know, uh, just an investigative point. It also goes right in, deep into the history of the place, from when it first formed. Because the one thing I'm afraid of with the uh, increase in attention being paid to the paranormal in terms of uh, you know what book companies are looking for, I would hate to think that you sent this out to publishers and they're looking it over and they're like, you know, I like the book, you know, you, you have all the information, it's well researched, but there's just it's not scary enough. And I think that's like the one word that I don't want to hear associated with books, nonfiction books in the paranormal, is scary. Is that something that you heard during the process of shopping the books around, or? Absolutely. No, not really at all. They, um, at, when I finally got to this point of Haunted Rhode Island and all the others, the publishers and editors absolutely love them because of the fact that they do tell everything about the place. They're factual. They're factual in the fact if we saw something, we write about it. If we didn't, we just, man, we didn't find anything. So the, the way the stories are presented, whether they're long or short, are very, very... Uh, well, in their own right, you know, truthful in, they get, can get a little scary because mm -hmm. if people get scared about it. I've heard a lot of people say, I had to put it down. I was scared, you know, reading it because some of the things that have happened are historically documented well, in the places. <laughs> sometimes it's a, a little scarier, too, when it's presented factually because, you know, it's, it's harder to say, oh, well, that's probably just somebody imagining something. It's you're being presented this fact. Many people have seen it. You know, then it actually does make it a little scary. But we, for a show that calls ourselves Spooky South Coast, I mean, it's kind of ironic, but we try not to push the fact that the paranormal is scary. We try to push it as just something that is unknown. Right. Yeah. It's, to me, it's scientific. Exactly. That's, that's what, that's what we're looking for. And, and that's why I'm afraid, you know, these publishers, they don't really know what they're doing when they get into the paranormal field and they start fielding these books and they say, well, you know, you, you, maybe on page 42, you could have, you know, like a demon come out. You know, like, that's the kind of stuff that I don't want to start hearing. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> Actually, my editor is, uh, she's in a paranormal group in Chester County, Pennsylvania, so. Now, is this, is this, uh, company Schiffer, do they spe specialize in paranormal publishing, or? Actually, no, they have many, they go into collectings, um, war memorabilia, they have different, actually different categories in life size. They're one of the biggest, they have over 300 authors. 
Wow. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. So, And we are talking to one of them tonight, Tom D'Agostino. If you have any questions for him, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And, of course, we're focusing on Haunted Rhode Island because that's the book that's out right now. And we'll have Tom back in the future to talk about Haunted New Hampshire and ha- Haunted Massachusetts. But certainly they're on the table as well for tonight's discussion. What we'll do is we'll take a quick break. And on the other side, we'll get into some of these specific haunted locations. So stay tuned here on Spooky South Coast. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Old Island Bound. Like, like a bunch of renegade pilgrims, pilgrims who have thrown out of Plymouth, Plymouth Colony. Colony. And you, you come from Rhode Island. And little old Rhode Island is famous for you. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, Matt Costa, and Matt Moniz along as well. And we are talking to Tom D'Agostino, an author and a paranormal investigator who has put out a book, Haunted Rhode Island, and we're going to talk about some of the locations in Rhode Island that are haunted. Uh, Now, most people probably have heard stories... uh, I mean, I guess based on what they've seen on Ghost Hunters, they've done some uh, some Ocean State investigations on that program, and they've probably heard stories about the Newport mansions. And there is there's a Providence ghost tour now. There's a Newport ghost tour. So it's it's definitely getting out there. But what would you call the one most haunted location in the state of Rhode Island, if you had to pick one? Actually, it would be the Stagecoach Restaurant, which is now called Tavern on the Main. It's in the center of Gloucester on Route 44. And it was built in 1799. People who have gone in there, I mean, there's been so many accounts, I couldn't even begin to tell you how many. I, I put it in a book, and it was like three pages, but there's so many others I didn't put in. Of There's a ghost in the back booth. We did a few investigations. There were wild things actually happened. And uh, since the first owner left about February, it closed, and it just opened up last week. And while they were rebuilding, tons of stuff was happening. Boxes were flying off the bar. Door, lights were going on and off by themselves, doors opening and closing when no one else is in the room. There's a ghost of a little boy in the dining room. There's a ghost of a girl in the dining room. There's a ghost of a girl in the bar area. Well, we've had uh, many discussions with our friend Derek Bartlett from Capers about when you remodel and how that will bring out a lot of spirit activity. Do you think maybe that it's intensified by that, or is it just always that strong there? Oh, yeah, it's always that strong because they didn't even do remodeling. They just kind of cleaned up. Oh, they just... Yeah, took a few pictures off the wall, put other things on because it, it still has the same look it had for the last 150 years. And what kind of uh, impetus was there for some of the stuff to happen? I mean, is there any stories cataloging how these ghosts might have came about there? Or? Well, yeah, one was a, a shooting there in 1973 where a woman was killed, and another one was uh, during... It was Door War when Thomas Door became governor. He was a People's Party governor, but Samuel King, who was, uh, I guess he was a Whig or a Democrat, wouldn't step down. So a battle ensued, but it never really happened. When Thomas Door saw the whole Rhode Island militia coming, they uh, they disbanded really quickly. And some of them stayed in the stagecoach, which was Jedediah Sprague's Tavern at the time in 1842. And the only casualty of the whole war was someone shot through the keyhole hitting Horace Bourdain in the leg. That was it. But things like that have happened. People, obviously, the families have died in there. They, they, since 1799, an awful lot of people have been in and out of there. And they don't know who the ghost of the little boy is. They don't know who the ghost of the girl who appears in the back booth is. But I got an EVP recording one night 
of her in the back booth. And we also had a video clip of someone who looked like maybe early 1800s walking through the dining room. Well, and you have video of that? Yeah, uh, someone I, oh, a friend of mine has a video right now. Is it is it transparent? Is it? Yeah, it's transparent. And it's holding a lantern. It's really weird. And we tried to recreate it from the outside using all kinds of light from the inside, and it just can't be recreated. And with the EVP of the little girl, do you, do you remember what it said? Oh, it was of the woman, and I was sitting in the booth, and I said, when I played it back later, this is what I got, but I asked the questions, is there someone here? Would you like to talk to me? Blah, blah, blah. And when I replayed it back, I got this distinct no. <laughs> so uh, that pretty much ends that line of questioning. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I believe you mentioned a member of the Sprague family uh, when you were talking about that? Yes. And, and, of course, the Sprague Mansion in Rhode Island, another very haunted location. Right, yes. What's uh, What's some of the history of activity there? Well, some people have seen a woman, which they think is um, Lucy Chase Sprague, walking down the stairs. She was one of the last, actually, of the Sprague's to have the mansion. They, they went bankrupt. Their businesses went bust. Uh, and, of course, Amos the Sprague was killed and found dead. His stone is actually in the Sprague mansion they, when they replaced it with a giant tomb in Swan Point. And it says he was murdered. It says it right on the stone. That's yeah. not asking for trouble. I know. Close, you know? <laughs> no, it, I know, huh? And uh, there's another, they've seen a ghost of a guy down in the cellar. They think was a butler in the wine cellar. And they've seen, there's a doll room in there, which is really creepy. And they think, they said things happen there, the dolls move and stuff. I, when we were there, I, I just gave a quick look. I didn't want to see any dolls moving. Yeah, either. I wouldn't want to hang around in that room either. I'm not afraid of much, but when dolls start moving, it's time to go. That's, uh, that's John Zaffis' territory. He's the one that handles the moving dolls. And, uh, and... This is another one of those locations, too, where, you know, over the course of time, the stories have been really uh, solidified by the many people who have experienced it. Uh, And how much differential is there in the story from one person to the next? I mean, is there a lot of just similar reports of the same type of sightings or – there are, and then there's some that uh, were put in that I didn't really, that just popped up a couple of paranormal groups did. One took a, said they got a picture of a figure in this china closet, and they got a reflection of someone in the glass, so I figured, oh, let me try that, take the picture. And at the time, I was with uh, Keith and Carl Johnson and Arlene, and, a, and we had gone, we did the tour of it, and so I took a picture of this china closet, and lo and behold, I got a, two ghosts. One looked remarkably like Carl Johnson, and the other looked remarkably like Arlene. Due to the mirrors in the glass, the cut mirrors, <laughs> it just reflected. They were way off to the side of me, but it looked like they were standing right behind me. And, so. you, you know, most, most ghosts would want to look like Carl Johnson, I think, too. Anyway, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised. So uh, we'll, we'll insert a little happy birthday message to Keith and Carl right now. So, And... Uh, <laughs> You know, and I, I told them, I let them know that we would be talking to you tonight and be talking about Haunted Rhode Island, so I'm just warning you ahead of time, they might call in and they might try to trick you, like they did to Rosemary Ellen Guiley last week, so. But now, when you uh, when you get out to these places and you approach these places uh, about talking to them for the book or for an investigation, is it, oh boy, here comes another one of these stories, or do they really embrace this paranormal history of these locations? Actually, if I'm doing an investigation, I don't walk in expecting anything, mm-hmm. The, the, I keep this kind of investigative attitude of, like, if I, if I believe or believe in what they're saying automatically, I might miss something that is there that's rationally explainable, where if I go in as a skeptic, I might miss something there that is paranormal by saying, ah, I don't believe in it. 
<laughs> so I go in with an well with an empty head because that's what I actually have. So it's easy. <laughs> it's pretty easy. <laughs> and, and you find that these people are willing to talk about it, or do they do they kind of, you know, waffle on it a little bit? Like, oh yeah, they say it's haunted. I, you know, I saw something. I'm not sure what it was. Actually, yeah, they love talking about it. Ninety five percent of the people that I've ever talked to about these places like that when they were in there are absolutely could bend your ear for an hour. Because I, I don't want to, I don't want to categorize any any particular group of people, but it seems to me like Rhode Islanders really embrace their history, and a lot of the different unique aspects of Rhode Island history. So, uh, it just seems logical to me that the paranormal would be something that most people would accept as part of the history. Oh yeah, whether yeah. They, whether they believe it or not. Well, we have an officially haunted site, and it's called the Ramtail Factory. And it's on the 1885 census, page 36, as officially haunted. It says it right in it. And uh, is that what, what exactly are the hauntings that happened there? Well, Peleg Walker, who was a, he was part of the owner at one time, and he, this was in 1822, he hung himself. The factory was a fulling mill, and it was the largest attempt at a water wheel factory. And he was an extravagant spender. He was a son-in-law to uh, William Potter, and he got into some financial trouble. I guess they ousted him from the partnership, and he hung himself from the bell rope of the factory. And he did say, and this is right through, one day you were going to take the keys to the mill from a dead man's pocket. And when the, he used to ring the bell to wake up the villagers, it's a little village around it, and when the bell failed to ring one day, they went in, they had to break in, and there they found him hanging with the keys in his pocket. They buried him, and a few nights later, the bell started ringing at midnight. They went in, they saw nothing, and they locked up again, and this happened a couple of times. They removed the rope. When it kept happening, they had to remove the bell. And then one night, they were woken by the whole factory running full tilt against the river. This is actually in the books. And this scared the people. They didn't want to work in the factory anymore. There's a book called The Agricultural and something of a force. All, all the towns have it. They credit the demise of the mill to the ghost of Peleg Walker. Wow. Yeah, and his, and his actually countenance was seen a few times and we actually had experiences there, too. We, one of my visits there, we saw a glowing form, and it was in the air, though. It came through the trees. And later, I, when I went back in the day, I deduced that it was actually, what it was, was floating in the air, would have been the first floor of the factory, because it's all in ruins now. And, and you talk about your personal experiences. And another location where you had personal experiences is the the, uh, the old funeral home affectionately known as the morgue. Oh, yeah. And uh, why don't you tell people about that location and, and some of the experiences that you had there? That's in Coventry on Route 117, and it's Gorton's Funeral Home, where it was. And we rented it a long time ago to re for rehearsal space as a collective group with a bunch of bands. And the first thing we did is we pushed the embalming table out of the way and built a studio there to rehearse. One night, as I was coming in, I saw someone walking by the stairs. We'd walk in through these big doors into the cellar. And I'm two-thirds down the stairs, and someone comes walking by. I just figured it was someone who was coming to watch the band rehearse. And then when they walked right through the furnace, I realized that <laughs> they've been there a lot longer than I have. And another one was when I was upstairs. We were closing the door upstairs because we used to go upstairs sometimes and to lock up. And as I was going to close the door, something pushed the door on the other side. It looked like an old, older man with wire-rimmed glasses, and which freaked me out because nobody else was in the building but me at the time. And I went into the office about a month later. There's an old office there. I went to use the phone, and there's a picture of the guy. He was one of the original funeral home caretakers from the 1800s. Wow. 
So uh, I guess the morgue is an appropriate nickname for it then, because you know it is this collection of you know former former people that have now passed on. Uh, how did it get that name? Is that just something you guys came up with, or is that something that? Yeah, because it was a funeral home and a morgue at the same time in the 1800s. I mean, there's still bottles of embalming fluid that were all over the cellar. We didn't want to touch them. All you needed to break one of those things. <laughs> but it was yeah, formaldehyde everywhere, and uh, it was an actual funeral home. Well, some yeah. bands would actually kind of drink that stuff while they're playing. Yeah, I wouldn't well. be surprised. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I wouldn't try it. Uh, I'm pretty <laughs> sure Metallica would have tried it like back in their heyday. Brings new meaning to the word death metal. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you, I didn't mean to cut you oh, off. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I was going to say I've had corn whiskey before, if that's close, but... <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, if you drink embalming fluid, you just end up dead. Well, yeah. actually, you probably live longer because it preserves you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it, it, it pickles all the, uh, yeah, all the uh, vital organs. <laughs> but and, and while you were there and, and while you were practicing, it was kind of like you had a, you know, like a captive audience there, though. Yeah. We, I mean, one night we heard some shrieking and screaming upstairs. It was three floors. And the upper floors were all viewing rooms, and they had the wide stairs, and you could go up there. That's where the people would view the caskets, and up there was old wheelchairs and old cases full of clothing. Where I guess the per- people brought their deceased clothing that was still there from the 1920s and before. And so we didn't know what was going on. We thought someone was just playing a bad joke. We ran up all three. You can only go up one way. The way we went up, and when we reached the top of the stairs, where all the pile of junk was, the screaming stopped. And we just searched the whole upstairs. There's nowhere to go. There's only one way down. And the whole floor is open. It's just a wide open floor. And there's nobody there, nothing. And, and you said uh, in the book you mentioned that somebody else had moved in uh, in one of the upper levels using it for yeah. another purpose. And they didn't last too long themselves. Nobody ever lasted. One of the guys in our band lived there for about three months and he couldn't take it. <laughs> I think he said something to that he'd rather live on the streets of Providence than another day there. And now what what is it used for now? Is it still the same situation, people moving in and out? Or? They renovated it to some office spaces. When we were there, there was an old bookstore there, and it was I, I, the guy just got an inheritance, left for Florida, gave us all the old books. Oh. And uh, I got yeah, I got a bunch of them, original Nathaniel Hawthorns and stuff. But uh, now it's office spaces and smaller things, but the outside still looks like it did back 20 years ago, all ramsack. And we used to be sitting outside on a Sunday. If the wind was blowing, the coffin nails would come out of the side and hit you in the head. Oh, wow. And, and is there similar reports now coming from the people who inhabited, or did they not really talk about it much? Or? A few people have said something. that uh, the people There's a woodworking shop of the guy who owns it, and he said stuff was going on still. that People hear weird noises. They hear voices that they can't explain or find so this is going on and a lot of these uh haunted locations are in you know i guess we could say modern times uh there's a lot of the after effects of you know modern society and some of these hauntings go back uh, you know to colonial times uh and to of course something that we always get back to here on spooky south coast is king philip's war and a lot of the battlefields uh, and there's one location called nine men's misery oh yeah and, and what's what's the story behind that location well and during King Phil's Water in, on March, was March 26th, in 1675, no, 1676, I'm sorry, um, there was a militia, Rehoboth militia, chasing, I think it was Kananche and his men. They were marauding different towns, and they heard they were heading up towards Rehoboth, so they were, and Seekonk, so they were swerping around to get them. And actually, the Indians were on a ridge watching this band of militia come through, and they pretended they were wounded. 
So they came walking in all proud. Hey, we got the Indians, and they just there was bands and bands that just attacked them. I mean, ransacked the the Rehoboth militia, and they captured nine men, tortured and killed them. And then they left the spot, of course, quickly because they had to get out of there because Captain Michael Pierce was the guy who was part of the militia. He had gone and run for reinforcements because they just couldn't keep up to. They were like outnumbered something like ten to one. So they buried the people on the spot where it's, it's called Nine Men's Misery today. And in the 1800s, it's kind of funny, this is how they found it was a Rehoboam militia. So a couple of people went down there and dug them up. And they found, when the, the Cumberland people found this out, and they went running over there and stopped it, but not before they pulled out some skeletons, finding that there was one six-foot-five man with double set of teeth known as Benjamin Buckland. And that's how they figured it was a Rehoboth militia, because he was from Rehoboth. And they buried him back up, and they put a monument there. But now they hear screaming. They hear, they hear the cries of war, the screams of pain of, the, I guess, what the people supposedly heard as they were being tortured and butchered. And there's a phantom horseman that appears on the path there. And this is an old monastery, too, so the, the monastery grounds are there. <clears throat> and there's a little boy seen near the swamp just about 50 yards from the Nine Men's Misery spot, too. And And... It seems like there's a lot of these other locations. I mean, maybe not all covered in the book, but you hear all these stories about different burial grounds and different battlefields from the war, and they always seem to have this negative oppression hanging around them. Yeah, well, it was brutal slaughtering. I mean, you know, the, the natives were really sick of the settlers, and they, I mean, they were cutting off their heads, they were skinning them alive, they were burying them, they were chopping them to pieces, you know, burning <laughs> villages, innocent people. It was just, that was what's going on, you on can, both sides. That's what, definitely what we'd call today in modern courts, crimes of passion. I mean, you could tell that they had that hatred building up over time. I got a question for you, Tom. I did a lot of research in Cumberland on other paranormal things. One of the places I always kept getting drawn back to was a place called Iron Mine Hill. Are you familiar with it? I know where it is, yeah. What is it that you... Uh, there's been all kinds of paranormals from cryptozoological type creatures, dozens and dozens and dozens of UFO encounters, some with some incredible uh, film and uh, photographs, and uh, a, a bunch of spirits walking walking the hill. It's the area where they have the State Rock Cumberlandite. Yeah. Um Lots of weird things from that area. I've heard a lot of people talk about it. I never studied it too much, but I've become over the past few months. Actually, I've heard a lot of talk about it. It's become very interesting. Well, I'm headed. I work in Cumberland, as you know. Yeah. And one of the things I'm thinking of doing is heading back there and doing a little investigation. You want to join me? Yeah, sure. That's near Diamond Hill, right? Yes. Because we walked that a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> The only spirits we saw were empty beer bottles and parties, but I'd, I'd love to join. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, I got some of the history behind it. I'll hook up with you and show you what, what information I've been able to dig up on it. Yeah, that's great. And you'll have to, of course, report to us anything uh, that you find while you're investigating it. Well, why don't we take another break here, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Haunted Rhode Island. And then, uh, of course, in hour number two, we'll have the Week in Weird and then a whole other hour's worth of discussion. If you'd like to join in, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Of course, you can also get a hold of us if you go to the thespiritofsociety.net and their live chat room. Matt Koss is waiting to talk to you there. And if you log on to SpookySouthCoast.com, go to the message board. Matt Moniz will field your questions there as well. We can pass them on to Tom. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. 
Crystal Expectations is an extraordinary experience. Crystal Expectations has books, jewelry, candles, incense, oils, CDs, tarot decks, religious and fantasy statues, and cultural items from around the world. Crystal Expectations offers a wide variety of services including Reiki, Kuan Yin, Magnified Healing, and Meditation. Do you want to find out the influences in your life and what the future holds for you? Call to schedule a tarot or Hindu astrology reading. Crystal Expectations knowledgeable staff has over 40 years experience in a wide variety of spiritual disciplines. They can provide instruction in spiritual cleansing for yourself and techniques to reduce negative influences in your life. Crystal Expectations is located at 854 Brock Avenue in New Bedford, serving those interested in the paranormal and spiritual for over 18 years. 508-990-7898 or visit crystalexpectations.net. You can also email them at crystalx at verizon.net. I know who's watching him. The IRS. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I'm not supposed to talk about the bumpers anymore. Whoops. That's, of course, because of our new, uh, our new partnership with PlanetParanormal.com. You can check out Spooky South Coast there. Uh, eventually, there might be a live stream there, but... We can't talk about that right now. Talk to me about that later. But uh, you can listen to the show on planetparanormal.com as well. In addition, we've signed up with a whole bunch of different podcasting networks now. Matt Costa, have you been behind this? Or are you the one that's signing us up for all these podcasting networks, or are they just somehow picking us up? I think they're just picking us up. It's they like the weird. show. so. Well, I'm glad, and I'm glad that people are supporting us and, and getting the podcast out there. If If you know a website where the podcast could be and it's not... Uh, just get a hold of us, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. We'll give you the podcast feed link. We don't care where it goes. We can put it up everywhere. We've uh, we've had some interesting correspondence uh, over the past week with a listener out in Australia. Her name is Carrie. We'd like to say hello and thank you for getting in touch with us. Uh, it just it amazes me uh, when you go on. We have a, a counter on our website, and you can go in and see where a lot of people are checking us out from. They just updated the software that they use. So now in addition to seeing what country it comes from, we can also see now what town it comes from as well. So, And it's just strange. Some of the remote locations that are tuning into Spooky South Coast, it makes me actually feel uh, inadequate. So I apologize. Still no Kazakhstan? No Kazakhstan yet. But uh, I think part of the problem with that is they don't have computers, apparently. They're too busy sinking all their national resources into suing Borat. So uh, they they have not yet to jump on the spooky South Coast bandwagon. But for those of you who have, we thank you. And remember, you can find us uh, all week long on SpookySouthCoast.com. If you missed part of the show, if you want to hear part of it again, if you want to share it with somebody you know who uh, can't listen live on Saturday nights, check us out there. We uh, also release the show on iTunes every week. You can download it for free for your MP3 player or your computer. And uh, as I was saying, all kinds of different podcasting sites and i just figured something out today guys i figured out how to actually put a link in a myspace bulletin with the show in it so now we can get it out to you on myspace that easy and we will do that each week so if you want to join up on our myspace account it's myspace.com slash spooky south coast that myspace is going to take over the world isn't it i think we might be like 20 22 23 years late on this but that could be the big brother that orwell was talking about so we'll uh, we'll have to investigate that. Sounds like a show topic for another. We'll get Tom to come on. 
you know, MySpace Tom. We'll get him to come on and defend his company and say that they're not, they're not an extension of Big Brother. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get back into the discussion about Haunted Rhode Island with our guest Tom D'Agostino. Uh, Tom, one place that I have been hearing a lot of reports about lately, and I don't know if there's a lot behind this or if it's more just uh, the nostalgia value of this location and the fact that it's uh, pretty much just about gone. It's only a matter of time. But the Rocky Point Park, uh, what's it, in West Warwick or – Oh yeah, yep. And, and Warwick, Warwick and, Neck, yeah. And I've, I've just I've, for the last maybe two, three, four years, I've heard a lot of reports about paranormal activity there. It doesn't have the same uh, history that a lot of these other so-called haunted amusement park sites have had. I know there's one where there's a carousel in Rhode Island uh, where there was a ballroom fire, and of course Lincoln Park had a similar situation here in Dartmouth, a ballroom fire. And these seem to have that history, that impetus, that something that started it off. Uh, but what is it about Rocky Point? Do you know? Have you heard any stories around it? Or I've had, yeah, I've heard a lot of stories, and most of the time it's just, again, like you said, probably old wives' tales because mm-hmm. I've never, there hasn't been any documentation of, per se of. There was a fire in the uh, ballroom there. I guess every ballroom has to catch oh, yeah. fire in an amusement park right? <laughs> sooner or later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but um, I really haven't heard much enough to go investigate. I think a lot of the kids. Teenagers going in there, mm-hmm. they're partying, you know, they hear a piece of an old building fall down, and the next thing you know, they're being chased by demons or something. Because I really haven't. You're also much. dealing with other spirits, probably, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and then, of course, any kind of uh, haunted location, I mean, any kind of abandoned location like that becomes a haven for maybe cult activity or. Oh, definitely. There's an old church of, in the woods if you were standing at the shore dinner hall, mm-hmm. and you were looking to the right, you'd see around where uh, the Aldrich Mansion is. Between that and there, there was an old church. I guess it was probably for the Aldrich Mansion. And we went there once. The ruins of it, the walls are still up 10, 20 feet, full of uh, satanic, demonic things, whether you could tell whether they were having rituals there. And that was recently the site. They had a a fire there that pretty much took care of a lot of the buildings that were still standing. And that kind of uh, got the... Got the ball rolling to tear down that location and start building some of these high-end condos, which we've seen happen at a lot of former amusement park sites. That's what's going on at Lincoln Park now, uh, Paragon Park and Hull, same thing. I remember, uh, I think I told the story on the air before, but I remember, I don't know if you ever went to Paragon Park back in its heyday, when you would come up the, uh, whatever the main road is, heading into Hull. Uh, the first thing that you would see is this hulking amusement, uh, hulking roller coaster that would just rise up out of the distance. And now, as you're going in there, all you see is this hulking apartment building rising <laughs> up out of the horizon. And it just seems like these are the locations now that people are developing for for profit. And I think maybe these stories kind of prop up around them uh, prior to the construction happening, maybe as a way to prolong any kind of building or maybe to try to save these locations. But it does seem like these stories are attaching themselves uh, onto these old amusement parks. Yeah, probably because they are abandoned and they're very big. And a lot of times when these parks close, a lot of the rides get shipped off, making, mm-hmm. of course, them more empty. And they look creepy. You know, you see the buildings falling apart. So it, a lot of things can be born from that. And I also heard stories when I was younger and when uh, Rocky Point was operational. There was the... Uh, the urban legend surrounding the haunted house there the the I forget the actual name of it, but there was there was a lot of legends that went around that that was somehow connected to the occult world and that it was actually like a quote unquote doorway to hell and uh, which you know I, I can understand those stories it's got nothing on the canopy Lake amusement park one but still <laughs> well, for the month they charged a ride through it, it certainly was a doorway to hell no? <laughs> yeah well exactly 
Uh, and it just, you know, maybe if there are spirits that are drawn to these old amusement parks, maybe it's not negative in nature. Maybe it's the fact that there were so many happy, positive memories at these places that people who have passed on their spirits drawn to it. Mike, that, that's definitely a possibility, especially when, like that, so many people, you know, it could have, moments in time could have gotten held into the earth as uh, residual memories, sure. Because I remember when I went there hearing moaning and groaning, strange moaning sounds and everything, but I just knew it was from everybody coming down from the shore <laughs> dinner hall full of uh, clam cakes and chowder. So, but, you know, if anybody, uh, you know, we don't condone people going to uh, these locations because they are fenced up, they are boarded up, they are private property. But if anybody does have any connections into that uh, development, I've been trying to get in touch with them to see if we can get in there before they start tearing things down and, and have a chance to investigate. I'd ask the same thing of the people at Lincoln Park developing that site, too, and I've just kind of run into... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that type of yeah. – maybe they don't want that kind of uh, reputation to carry over into what they're doing, but it just seems like uh, they're not really – they're very reluctant to allow that type of eh, – it could be insurance purposes. and Yeah, that also because a lot of it is all built up already. The Shore Dinner Hall is a, a recreation hall, I think, or something now. For oh, the it's already condos. all taken care of? Yeah, there was only a small section that was left, and I think that was, you know, somebody kind of hastened that <laughs> progress. Yeah, well – we're not accusing anybody, but of course not. <laughs> well, my thought on why they might want not to let you in is because of disclosure. In terms, uh, real estate, it's a law. Well, yeah, if you know, if you know the house or property is haunted, you have yeah, to legally have to. disclose it. And that would be a whole lot of paperwork hassles uh, for all the condos they're trying to develop there. But if anybody out there listening does know, do know the people involved, uh, and they would be willing to allow an investigation to take part, we're not going to do it just ourselves. We're going to bring in uh, a group with us as well, uh, so that you don't have to worry about just some crazy radio guys. Matt Money is excluded. <laughs> you're a crazy radio guy, but you're also a crazy paranormal investigator too. So you have some legitimacy. So, but we are coming up on the news break, so we will take a a break now for the news, and then on the other side, of course, we'll. Talk about the week and weird, some of those stories that you may not have heard during the regular newscasts. Matt Moniz will tell us a little bit about a new venture, similar to what Tom was talking earlier, a central organization to tie in a lot of these paranormal research groups. Matt's got a, a new one that he's serving on the board of that is worldwide, and it's a really in, an international brotherhood of paranormal investigators. We'll get into that. And then we'll also talk more about Haunted Rhode Island, of course. And just remember, if you didn't hear it at the top of the show, for the next three weeks here on WBSM, Spooky South Coast will be coming on in an earlier time slot due to NFL football. We'll be on from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m., so you'll get a primetime taste. And next week we're going to have as our special guest, we will have Rick Hayes, a paranormal communications consultant. Just in time for the holidays, he's going to help you get in touch with some of your loved ones who may have passed over to the other side. So you're going to want to call into that show and talk to Rick. He's going to try to do whatever it is that he does to, to get these uh, spirits that have passed on to talk to him, and we'll pass along any holiday messages they might have for you. And uh, you can always check out our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. Go to the blog there, and you can find out who our upcoming guests are. Uh, we have a couple of weeks uh, coming up in December where we're going to try to put some stuff together during those primetime slots. And in January, we're going to have all kinds of special guests as well. So uh, you don't want to miss uh, the full slate that we have talking about all aspects of the paranormal. We're going to take a break for the news, and we'll be back with more Spooky South Coast.
Hi everybody, Tim Weisberg here from Spooky South Coast, wishing you a happy holiday season. And of course, now it's time to start getting that shopping done. We've had our Thanksgiving turkey, and now we've got to think about heading out to the stores and finding just the right gifts. Well, you don't actually need to do that anymore, because through the wonders of the Internet, you can do all your shopping at home. And even if you'd like to give somebody something homemade, but you don't have the time to do so, well, Knitbits has you covered. If you just go to their website, knitbits.etsy.com, that's K-N-I-T-B-I-T-S dot E-T-S-Y dot com, you can find great homemade crocheted and knitted items for sale. Uh, right now on Knitbits, they have a crocheted cell phone holder for three fifty. They have crocheted baby bibs for $10 and even a complete baby set for $25. And if you go to the Knitbits site, you can also contact Knitbits there as well. If there's something you'd like to have made that isn't there, or if there's something you like you'd like to see in a different color, just shoot them an email, let them know what you're looking for, and they'll be happy to comply. And of course, all items on Knitbits' website is guaranteed. They have 100% positive feedback. Imagine the smiles on people's faces Christmas morning when they open up a homemade knitted item from Knitbits. So if you would like to find out more, again, knitbits.etsy.com. So, from all of us at Spooky South Coast and from everyone at Knitbits, happy holidays and happy shopping. Damn, this is good. Who is this? Spooky South Coast. Whoever you say it, I like it. Hey! Spooky South Coast is burned. Two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. The silent assassin, Matt Costa. Believe it or not, he is in the room. Because somebody's got to play with all those buttons. How are you doing tonight, Matt? Doing alright. Spooktacular, I guess. Spooktacular. And uh, how's uh, how's things going with you? We uh, we haven't really heard much from you tonight on the show. Oh, great as always. And uh, you get all your Christmas shopping done yet? Or? Uh, no, usually wait till the last minute, usually. You, you do know that you can... Uh, Sometimes get- I wait till after Christmas, too. That works, too. Especially if it's like a relative you're not going to see before the holiday. Oh, yeah, definitely. That works out. I always tell him it's it's in the mail. There's some jerk banging on the window. I think he wants to be let back Mm -hmm. inside. Well, while we're talking about Christmas shopping, you can get all your Christmas shopping done right now by logging on to cafepress.com slash spooky south. That's where you can get uh, some of the T-shirts that we have available. You can get, uh, oh, what else, sweatshirts, uh, messenger bags, uh, notebooks. There's a, a wall clock. 
a mouse pad. There's all kinds of different items, and you know, we're not uh, we're not trying to talk you into buying anything. We're just trying to spread the word of Spooky South Coast and get it out there. So if you want to uh, partake in some of those items, feel free. CafePress.com/slash/SpookySouth. And, of course, we have some, some new hats, which uh, Mac Haas and myself are sporting. You can't see right now because we're on the radio, but we do have them, and we will have them up on the website for sale soon. Also, we have some exciting uh, new products coming out thanks to our partnership with a, a company known as Knitbits, which we can plug on the air here because it's my wife. It's not really a, a business, so we can plug them on the air here. Is there any word on the spooky South Coast EMF detector? Uh, we are still waiting to hear about that, of course. Dr. Ron Millione, the gadget guy from TAPS, is working on creating a EMS detector with the Spooky South Coast logo. And we're going to have Ron on the show uh, pretty soon here, so we'll talk to him. We'll make sure he gets on that. And everybody that wants to order one of those can start uh, harassing Ron when he comes on the air with us. Uh, but we will uh, we'll let you know as soon as we find out more about that. And speaking of uh, new ventures on the Internet, uh, Matt Moniz, uh, who was locked outside because he forgot to turn the key before he went outside. <laughs> That's the after-hours life of a radio station. But you, uh, You're a part of a new venture uh, on the Internet uh, known as IPI. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about that? IPI, International Paranormal Investigators. It's a uh, – basically it's a, a virtual uh, investigators forum. Uh, it's a collection of roughly over 500 groups now have joined it. Uh, I got asked by uh, a couple of the founders, Ryan and uh, Jeanette from MagWest, to help write uh, the scientific protocols for investigations of all the various forms of paranormal. And what I'm looking to do is write it in what is known as GLP format, or Good Laboratories Practices format. It's a scientific format that... If it's written out in the appropriate way, uh, it pretty much cannot be bunked if you follow the protocol as specified. Uh, and uh, one of the things about this organization is it is worldwide. Yes. Uh, of course, it's started by people on two different continents, so yeah. that kind of makes it worldwide to begin with. But also, it's not one of the things that they want to stress with IPI, and, and you can back me up with this or tell me if I'm wrong, but they're not going to tell you how to be a group. They're not going to ha- be no. a governance over you. No. It's just a networking for way, and it's recommended guidelines it, for people it, to use. Right. Uh, the protocols I'll be putting together is going to be adapted from the 500 groups that we have. I'll take the best pieces out of each of them and write them up in the appropriate scientific manner that, if, like I said, if they follow the, all of the steps through, this is like what laboratories use. It's a... Um, certification process that most laboratories have. They're GLP certified. And it, if they follow these formats and they obtain results, these results will be far harder to for anybody to, to basically bunk. And when people apply for this group, uh, I know that they don't govern you and they don't tell you how to investigate, but is there a certain criteria that you have to meet to join IPI or can any group join? Basically any group can join right now, yes. Um, there are some basic guidelines to using the forum, just like any other chat room yeah, or any, you know, basic decorum is what's exactly. required. But they're, they're there as a resource for other people. They have sections on photography, EMF detection, uh, EVPs, and people that are very knowledgeable and have years of experience and can help you with that or give you techniques and tips on how to use it. And now... How would people join if they were interested in, in signing up? 
uh, just head to their website, uh, www.international-paranormal-investigators.com. And, of course, if you're on MySpace and you uh, check out our MySpace account, myspace.com slash south, we have a lot of the IPI groups signed up with us, uh, as well as right on our top eight, you'll find Jeanette, and you can always get a hold of her. And, of course, you can find Matt Moniz online pretty easily most of the time, and he'll help point you in the right direction. And if you're, if you're a paranormal group that's serious about not only obtaining results but sharing them and learning from other groups' results, uh, this is something that you definitely want to get involved in. And we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. We hope to have uh, Jeanette and Ryan come on with us and maybe uh, some of the local groups that are part of IPI to talk about this whole thing. And then when you come up with your protocols combined from all the 500 groups, we'll have you read every single one of them on the air. No, that won't work. No. So hopefully, if you're lucky, a lot of these 500 groups will have similar steps in the procedure. It'll make your reading right. a lot easier. Right. I've already been review. I've already been reviewing a lot of their uh, material. Most of them, if if not, I would say about 75 to 80 percent of them already pretty much have have it nailed down. It's just changing wordings or changing the order in which they do things mainly. All right, well, I wish you luck with that project. It's going to be a long one. Now, so, I may be the writer of the group, but I don't know anything about uh, GLP. I can write. I don't know anything about GLP, so don't ask me for any help with that. That's all your area. You, are they <laughs> company, just, well, I'm, put it this way. You, you've heard of ISO 9000, right? No, I've never heard. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. It's a standardization that most manufacturing companies and other people, it's just to certify that all your data and documentation is correct into a specific type of format. See, that's my problem is uh, technical writing, not my forte, because there's no room for bull. And <laughs> bull's pretty much the only way I can write. Anybody that's read my sports stories knows that. So, all right. That being said, it's time to uh, talk about something that we like to call The Week in Weird. And our first story comes from The Times in the UK. A specialist science college was evacuated recently after a film on human biology apparently sparked mass hysteria. More than 30 pupils from ages 11 to 13, as well as a teaching assistant, were taken to a hospital after three children initially told research, uh, teachers that they were feeling unwell. As the other children, mostly from year 7 at Royston High School in Barnsley, South Yorkshire, had joined the sick list, staff reported a domino effect. When the entire class began feeling faint and nauseous, they called in the emergency services, fearing a gas link. Gas leak. Well, I'm not reading very well tonight, am I? All students and staff were assembled in the hall and sports hall before it was decided on the advice of paramedics that everyone at the 627 pupil school should be removed. They just couldn't figure out what was going on. So they called in an ambulance and they transferred everybody to the hospital for checkups. Uh, a hospital spokesman said the children were brought into our emergency department. And we checked their blood pressure, their pulse, and their blood sugar levels. They've never come across anything like this before. Two hours after the evacuation, the all-clear was given, and lessons for the older children unaffected by the scare resumed as normal after the lunch break. Head teacher Kate Jenkins said, I must emphasize that no children were ever in danger because of the fast, effective, coordinated response from the school and the joint emergency services. She said that no gas leak had been found and there were no experiments taking place in the lab at the time. We are still unsure about what happened, she said, but a group of 30 students were watching a human biology video, which is regularly shown in a science class. It's about the human body and how it works, and no blood is shown on the screen. Three children asked to leave and came down to the medical room feeling a bit queasy. Then another couple came down, and at that point, as a few pupils were showing similar symptoms, they contacted the ambulance service, and on the advice of the emergency services, the school was evacuated as a precaution. Police and fire services searched the building while the paramedics stayed with them throughout the rest of the day. 
the children were discharged within four hours of arrival at the hospital. Uh, they were picked up by their parents, and the incident is one of the latest of several ascribed to mass hysteria. Almost 300 children in Hollandwell, Nottinghamshire, collapsed and were taken to hospital while competing in a brass band competition in the field in 1980. Well, maybe they got out of breath playing the brass instruments. That's possible. But the biggest outbreak was in 1955 when 300 nurses at Royal Free Hospital in London complained of paralysis. Psychiatrists wrote a description of events for the British Medical Journal and described it as mass hysteria. But since then, the history of mass hysteria has become divisive. Some claim it to be all in the mind, while others assert that there may yet be an agent in a, uh, infective or chemical that could cause such symptoms. So, of course, we induce mass hysteria with each edition of Spooky South Coast. It's like Beatlemania. No? All right. Matt Moniz, what do you got for us? Well, in keeping with the gas. The noxious gas? Yeah. Flatulence leads to a grounding of a plane. Nashville, Tennessee, on December 5th. It is considered polite to light a match after passing gas, but not while on a plane. An American Airlines flight was forced to make an emergency landing Monday morning after a passenger lit a match to disguise the scent of flatulence, authorities said. The Dallas-bound flight was diverted to Nashville after several passengers reported smelling burning sulfur from the matches, said uh, Lane Lawrence, spokeswoman for the Nashville International Airport Authority. All 99 passengers and five crew members were taken off and the luggage was screened while the plane was searched and the luggage was screened. Okay. FBI questioned a passenger who admitted she struck the matches in an attempt to conceal body odor, Lauren said. She had an unspecified medical conditions, according to authorities. It's humorous in a way, but you feel sorry for the individual as well. It's unusual that someone would go to these measures to cover it up. The flight took off again, but the woman was not allowed back on the plane. The woman who was not identified was also not charged in the incident. So, uh, I guess that's uh, internal turbulence, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Gastrointestinal turbulence. Well, have you ever eaten airplane food? No, I've never actually been on a plane. Which is probably you haven't. No, I've never flown. Can you believe that? I don't call Ernie. He's going to have to take yeah, me because I've never. Yeah, we should call him. I've, I've never flown in a plane. I know every year in New Bedford here too, they offer free rides at the airport for people that want to go up and take a, a sightseeing tour. Something they do for for a charity. But uh, I've never uh, I've never partaken in that. Which you know, it's a good thing because I'd be just like the situation that lady was in. Only I probably wouldn't be smart enough to light a match to cover the fumes. So. I could just picture I just let one rip and then the uh, oxygen masks all come down. And, and well, the oxygen masks would have to come down for a whole other reason. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Matt Costa. Oh, hi, hi. You have anything for us? Yes. All right, excellent. Good, U- good show prep. <laughs> U.S. plans permanent base on the moon. A U.S. space agency, NASA, has announced its plans to start work on a permanently occu- occupied base on the moon after a... Astronauts begin voyages back there in 2020. The base will serve as a science center and and a possible stepping stone for manned missions to Mars. The U.S. has already said it plans to build a a new lunar spacecraft to succeed the last Apollo mission in 1972 to aid in the construction of the base. Funds will be moved from the space shuttle flights due to be scrapped in 2010 to fund the project. 
NASA is also expected to ask other countries and businesses to help it build the base. The permanent base will be will be built near one of the two poles as these are felt to have a moderate climate and more sunlight which would be essential if the base is to use solar energy. The structure of the base and exact duties of the astronauts stationed there have not been decided nor is it clear when the base will begin functioning. But for all the NASAholics out there, we at Spooky South Coast will keep you informed of any further developments. Na- NASAholics. NASAholics. That's pretty good. You know what they drink? I came up with that myself. You know what NASAholics drink? No. Nasty ice. I thought it was tang. That's true, too. <laughs> yeah. They spiked their tank. It's a kick in the glass. Yeah, in a similar vein, uh, a similar story that came out along those lines uh, last week was uh, uh, Professor Stephen Hawking stating that uh, in order for mankind to continue to exist, they need to look to moving off the planet Earth and existing elsewhere in the solar system. So maybe that's a step in the right direction. There was a maybe, hopefully a great special. If you have uh, Comcast cable and you have Comcast on demand, go to the high definition section and go to. Uh, it's Discovery's high definition section. They did this outstanding thing in, I believe, uh, early November or late October, where for the first time ever they synced up with the International Space Station and they did a live broadcast in high definition from the International Space Station. And it's just fascinating to watch, you know, the way that these astronauts are living up there and to see them hosting this, you know, television show from up there. And, and some of the images, I don't even have a high definition television, and some of the images on it were incredible. So if you get a chance, check that out. Now, we have another story here for you from our friend Madam Curie on the message board at SpookySouthCoast.com. Santa's evil sidekick. As Christmas nears, Austrian children hoping for gifts from Santa Claus will also be watching warily for Krampus, his horned and hairy sidekick. In folklore, Krampus was a devil-like figure who drove away evil spirits during the Christian holiday season. Traditionally, he appeared alongside Santa around December 6th, the Feast of St. Nicholas, and the two are still part of festivities in many parts of Central Europe. But these traditions came under the spotlight in Austria this year after reports last week that Santa, you, know, you might know him as St. Nicholas, Father Christmas, or Chris Kringle, had been banned from visiting kindergartens in Vienna because he scared some children. Officials denied the reports but said from now on only adults the children knew would be able to don Santa's bushy white beard and red habit to visit the schools. Now a prominent Austrian child psychiatrist is arguing for a ban on Krampus, who still roams towns and villages in early December. Boisterous young men wearing deer horns, masks with battery-powered red eyes, huge fangs, bushy coats of sheep's fur, and brandishing birchwood rods storms down the street. Or, as, you know, Moniz protecting his island, either way. (laughs) Confronting spectators gathered to watch the medieval spectacle, which is also staged in parts of nearby Hungary, Croatia, and Germany's Bavaria state. Anyone who doesn't dodge run away fast enough might get swatted, although not hard, with the rod. So there you go. So the Krampus character may be banned as well. You can read the complete story about Krampus on SpookySouthCoast.com. Just go to the message board there, click on the wink, uh, the Week and Weird thread, and you'll find it there. Matt, did you have another story you wanted to share with us? No, I can say that. Okay. Matt Costa, you want to uh, share anything else with us? Sure. For those shopping in Florida, police in Florida are looking for a little girl aged about seven who tried to steal Legos at knife point. The girl is said to have pulled a knife on a cashier at a Walmart store in Largo as she tried to walk out with two boxes of Legos. Police say the girl, aged about seven or eight, hid the toys under her coat and tried to walk out. A store employee approached the girl, asking her to turn over the Lego blocks. Police say the little girl then opened her jacket and pulled out a ten-inch carving knife. (laughs) (laughs) The, the The employee talked to the girl. Into, talk the girl into putting the knife down 
and the toys. The girl then rode away on her bicycle. The Largo police are still looking for any information regarding the identity of the child. The Largo police or the Lego police? I think they're teaming up on that one. I think so. Take a cabbage patch kid hostage. <laughs> <laughs> Don't move or the Tickle Me Elmo gets it. Is, it. is it just me, though? I mean, I know that they say it in the commercial, but I thought they were just kidding. But apparently, there are Lego maniacs out there. There are. It's just it's an epidemic. Oh, the crime that children are driven to. Oh, anyway, one last story here for you. Posted on the Spooky South Coast message board by our friend the Bogman. You can visit his site, www.hauntedbog.com. But uh, one governor is haunted by real ghosts. Now, this story might be familiar. Yeah, the, the governor in the story might be familiar if you remember when we talked to... Uh, oh, her name escapes me right now. But we talked about the Witch of Virginia Beach and... Uh, we talked about the governor pardoning that witch, and this is the same governor. It's not a leftover Halloween story. It is real. Virginia Governor Timothy M. Kane has confessed that the Virginia Executive Mansion is rife with paranormal activities. Lest you scoff, Kane is not the first gubernatorial resident of the mansion to experience such ghostly events. What spooky things happen? Kane explained on his monthly radio show on the Virginia News Network that at the same, quote, inconvenient time every week, the telephone rings in his family's private quarters. No one is ever on the other end. Kane is, that's actually Spooky South Coast calling for an interview. Kane is now researching whether something odd happened at this day and hour at some point in the mansion's history. Previous residents of the mansion have seen what they describe as the friendly ghost of a young woman, although the Kane family has not yet seen this apparition. Kane's wife, Ann Holton, lived in the mansion previously when her father, Linwood Holton, was governor of Virginia in the early 1970s. Well, that's convenient. She recalled that there were several strange occurrences and cited two examples. A portrait was mysteriously moved from a wall and then deposited in another room, and a violent storm knocked out power to all of Richmond except for a single electric light that remained on in the governor's mansion. So, there you have it. Virginia is definitely willing to embrace their paranormal history, and in just a few minutes, we'll come back and we'll talk more about Rhode Island's paranormal history with our guest, author Tom D'Agostino. So if you'd like to stay tuned and join in the conversation, feel free. 508-996-0500. We'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa behind the boards, and science advisor Matt Moniz behind his laptop tonight. He is online right now on the message board at SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to send your questions his way. Also, Matt Costa is in the chat room at SpiritedSociety.net. You can click on the chat link there and sign in there, and you can uh, talk to everybody in there. Uh, who's in there right now, Matt, that you, that you recognize? Uh, uh, Madam Curie is in there. Spooky Elf, which is an Eagle's Angel, I think. And Carl from, he's from California, right? Yeah, our buddy Carl. And uh, check, out his, check out his music. If you go to myspace.com slash silence your cell phones 
or uh, silencecellphones.com, I believe it is. You can check out Carl's music there. Great stuff. Uh, he has his little tribute page there set up to the Silent Assassin, who he lists as one of his major influences, which is not a good thing. You really shouldn't be influencing people because you're, oh, you're a bad influence. I am a bad influence. But uh, you can. there's a nice picture of you there smoking a cigar and uh, partaking in an alcoholic beverage. So that's, uh, that's Carl's little tribute page to you. And, of course, the, uh, the old-fashioned way to get in touch with us here and join in the conversation is just to call in, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And we're going to jump back into the discussion with author and investigator Tom D'Agostino, who has written a book on haunted Rhode Island and has books coming out in 2007, Haunted New Hampshire and Haunted Massachusetts. And one of the things that you get to do as a benefit of writing these books and chronicling this paranormal history of your state, you actually get to go into the classrooms and present this information to students. Yes, yes, we uh, do a lot of, because it's required reading for many of the schools along the state of Rhode Island, and even some in Connecticut and Massachusetts, we've uh, gone in and we do the lectures in the classrooms, and the kids have the books, and, you know, and I show them all the pictures we have of what might be ghosts, what might not, and the case histories, and they get all excited, they love it, you know, we, that's that's really really great that it's required reading on some of these curriculums and also that the fact that they'll let you come into the schools and talk about the subject matter because you know when I was in school 10 15 years ago I couldn't imagine them allowing you know this type of discussion we we talked about it in one science class uh you know that both Matt Moniz and myself had growing up uh, uh well, well we'll just throw his name out there uh, Peter Hassenfuss probably the he's the reason why I became a scientist Exactly one of the single biggest uh, reasons why we're we're doing what we do and he really encouraged this type of discussion. But other than that, it really wasn't had in the classroom. And to be able to go in there and, and talk about this and present it as something that is of historical and scientific value is even better. Yeah, actually, they they learn a lot from it because, of, yes, the historical and the scientific thing, it forces them to actually learn it whether they like it or not. They think they're yeah. reading about ghosts and having a great time, <laughs> but, you know, they're absorbing history and stuff and we never had it when I was in school either. Well, and that's a credit to, to your skills as a writer to be able to incorporate that and to keep it interesting uh, to your audience. And when you can bring along some photos of ghosts, too, I can imagine that helps sell it, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I brought along a few EVPs, you know, and little kids get scared. It's fun to do that, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's always good. Send them home. Uh, uh, all right, go tell your mom and dad that ghosts are real now. But uh, And what are some of these other locations? Uh, I know that you mentioned uh, there's one particular site uh, where there are Carnes out out in the woods. Uh, wh where where would that be found? Oh, that's one in George Parker Woodland in Coventry, and it's a nice walking trails. And there they have some carns which are mounds of stone, and they're shaped a certain way. They they think they could be Indian burials, but also the Vikings and early settlers, the Venusians and people were supposedly here three thousand years ago, and these. Mounds, I guess. Uh, some say they're just farmers, you know, clearing their fields and not making stone walls out of them. And some say they're Indian burials. And people have done a lot of investigating on them, but nothing has ever really been known for sure what they are. So they, they remain an enigma. Have they been excavated? That's one thing that they won't do for some reason. They won't excavate underneath them. And URI went down there, and they just kind of did. I did some readings, and believe it or not, I got an EMF reading in the middle of the woods from one of these carns. Wow. And it could have been magnetism in the rock or something, but still it was kind of cool, you know, I was saying, whoa. Did, <laughs> so whatever they are, uh, I was hoping that they would have, but the URI went down there and they they never excavated underneath them to find out. They just kind of said, let's leave it alone. They should <laughs> be using uh, GPR or ground penetrating radar. Yeah. Um, 
depending upon how these mounds are built, they can produce an electromagnetic field. I, one place I went and investigated, pretty famous place out in England, it's called Silbury Hill. Uh, I, I got a chance to go actually up on the hill, and there's been a number of studies done on this. Uh, it is actually a large DC-type battery because of the way that the uh, strata is layered. Combination between, like I said, a series of different types of rock and soil, and as the water matriculates down through it, it creates an electrophilic charge, and it oh, produces nice. roughly one volt DC. Well, that's what I figured was happening here, too. So it had to be something, a natural phenomena, you know, because it was only one or two of them that were doing it out of, I guess it was a dozen there. And uh, also, uh, on a side note, too, but something that I wanted to mention is uh, in Wareham, I don't know if you saw this story, but locally here in Wareham, they uh, are excavating for that mall that they're building, and they found some of the uh, old stones associated with the, the cemetery that was uh, in the woods in that area a long time ago. And uh, they also found some other stones, too, that are a little bit stranger, that they don't really know why they were there. And we mentioned this on the air a couple weeks ago, but it's good news is they've all been turned over to the Town Historical Society, and they will be placed on the Tremont Nail property, which the town now has mm. control of. So these, uh, these stones and these, uh, the cornerstones for the cemetery will be saved, and they will be used uh, in some sort of uh, historical fashion So for people that were worried about that. But I just thought I'd mention that while we're talking about this. And uh, another location that you mentioned, too, is, well, one thing that we didn't mention, but you've investigated some of these sites related to the, to the Mercy Brown case, which is oh, probably yeah. Rhode Island's most famous paranormal case in their history. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mercy Brown was what they call the last of the Rhode Island vampires, and Rhode Island is historically known as the vampire capital of the world. There was more cases documented of vampires or vampirism in Rhode Island than anywhere else, and basically from... The first one kind of documented in 1790 to 1892 when Mercy Brown was dug up. And, well, she wasn't dug up. She was in the keep and labeled as a vampire. There was um, just a scare going on where family members, they actually was tuberculosis, what they called consumption. And they were digging up the family members and seeing which one looked more like that would maybe have blood in them or hadn't rotted away as much. And they'd cut out their hearts their organs, burn them, and feed the ashes to the afflicted. And during this time, <laughs> uh, only 20 miles away in Providence, Rhode Island, they were treating people for tuberculosis in hospitals. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, it was kind of like the, these, I mean, you were out there in rural Exeter. It was really like folk. And these people would just fell into this folklore and this vampire thing. And they, they thought George Brown, incidentally, Mercy's father, just scoffed at the whole idea. He didn't believe it at all, but the townsfolk were really pressured. You know, they practically were at his door with pitchforks and torches, so he had to give in. And he wouldn't attend it, but he had a Dr. Metcalf from Wakefield attend it. They dug up Mercy. I mean, well, they pulled her out of the keep. They dug up the mother and the sister who had died years before. And, of course, they were well rotted on their way. And when they took Mercy out of the keep, it just happened to be a few months after she died in January. It just happened to be March. Mm -hmm. Well, her body was in perfect condition. And this Being was, frozen had nothing uh, uh, to do with it. No, right? of course not. It was a vampire. <laughs> not, not that, you know, you put something outside for, you know, zero-degree weather for three months. And uh, she, when they cut open her heart, obviously there was blood in it still because it was frozen. And they, that was a vampire. They actually, burned, yeah, they actually burned the organs on a rock, and they fed the ashes to the brother Edwin, who was sick, and he died May 5th. And I would have 
died that moment from drinking that, but <laughs> <laughs> he, he had a more, I guess, stomach than I did. And uh, that's that was the last one. That's when people it made the news and people came down, you know, 20 miles away from Providence and said, what are you people doing down here? <laughs> <laughs> and you said she's the last in the long line of Rhode Island vampires. Are there other sites that are uh, tied into the vampire legend of Rhode Island? Yes, there is. As a matter of fact, some of them are right along uh, in Exeter. There's one only five miles away, which was the first, the Tillinghast family in historical cemetery number, uh, what was it, 14? And that is just a few miles down on Forest Hills Drive, and that's where they, the Tillinghast, Sarah Tillinghast was the first to pass away, and then the family brothers and sisters started going left and right. They have unmarked stones. A lot of the times that happened because they couldn't afford a stone. They died so fast from the tuberculosis or other diseases that they couldn't afford a lot of the stones, and they just never got around to it. Well, when they dug them all up, Sarah, the first to die, reportedly looked in perfect condition. Her eyes were open and even had color. So they dug, they burned her body, and they um, gave them medicine again to the afflicted child, but she died. And in 1825, the, the uh, let's see, that was in Com- no, that was in Foster, Jenks Hill. Levi Young and his family, they Nancy Young died, and they actually dug her up and burned her body while they all stood over, sn- sniffing the smoldering ashes. It's it's <laughs> some of the. The, the folk remedies that were tied into the stuff are uh, even more out there than some of the reports. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> and, and there was one, one other case that you mentioned uh, while we were in break. Uh, you talked about uh, the, the Native American woman. and Oh, Hannah Frank and mm-hmm. John Burke, yes. The case of Hannah Frank, where she's been actually haunting the place since the 1830s. Uh, John Burke was a peddler from Vermont. And around the time, this is Tar Hill in the Burrowville section, and we actually lived there, and it was more populated in 1810 than it is now. <laughs> it had it boasted factories and grist mills. All the remains are still there. So it was a very bustling place, and, of course, the, the Nipmuc Indians were part of that area, and they, they mingled with the regular settlers. And John Burke was a peddler. Hannah Frank was a 19-year-old native Indian, and he fell in love with her. But the Wormsley brothers, who she was housekeeper to, were just opposed to this. They actually threw them off the property many times. And back then you had peddlers coming to the places. That's how you got your tinware and everything else like that. And they'd make their trips to all these nice towns, and then they'd collect their money and be on their way. Well, he came several times, and one time he gave her a shell necklace. And she wore it around her neck, she treasured it. And the next time he proposed to her and wanted to take her back to Vermont. Well, the Wormsleys, they were pretty upset about it, and though they invited them in the house, and they partied and partied and partied and got them nice and drunk, and then they, while they were taken off, they headed them off at the path and uh, killed them. But w- what they did is John Burke ran one way, and they cut off his head, and they shot Hannah Frank, and she died in the spot where the graves are now. They, they kind of tried to hide John Burke's body. They found out what happened through... Um, J.D. Nichols, who owned the factory that's in our backyard, actually, the remains of it, his, his housekeeper was the Wormsley sister. And when they found out, they uh, found the bodies and they buried them. We recently found like two graves. They were in the middle of the woods. Uh-huh. It's, it's known as Historical Cemetery 108. They've been missing. Her ghost has been seen in that area for the last 150 years or whatever, 175 years. And some people say she's looking for her necklace. Some people say she's looking for her lost one. We were taking pictures one day, and I heard somebody whisper, say something behind me, and I turned around. I was in the woods just off the road, and I saw something just whisk by me. And 
I don't know what it was. I can't, you know, I, I can't say for sure because I did not actually see in a full thing, but a lot of people said they've seen the Indian girl, including our next-door neighbors when they were growing up, in the woods, and it scared them really much. <laughs> well, why don't, we, uh, why don't we take a break right here, then, <laughs> that people right now can sit and shiver and <laughs> think about that story. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we'll talk more about Haunted Rhode Island and maybe a little bit more here on Spooky South Coast. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSF into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. All right, welcome back here to Spooky South Coast. And we got about 10 minutes left here in the show, so if you'd like to join in and talk about Haunted Rhode Island or Haunted Any Place in New England with Tom D'Agostino, you're more than welcome to join us. 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Maybe you just have uh, uh, some experiences you'd like to share or some questions you'd like to share. We had a, a listener who wanted to share with us some of their uh, coincidences in their life uh, I don't want to say coincidence. I'll say synchronicity in their life with JFK. We did that show a couple of weeks ago on the JFK assassination, and this person contacted me and wanted to share some of these stories. And she said that she had a lot of trouble, uh, you know, getting somebody to really listen to these stories and believe them. Of course, that's what we're here to do. We're here to believe uh, what you have experienced. Who, who are we to say what you saw, what you heard, what you know to be true? So she sent all this information, and she said it's okay to share it with the audience, but. We're, uh, we're going to compile all this information that she sent because it's, it's really a lot of uh, intriguing information. We're going to compile it all, and we'll, uh, we'll make sure we can post it up online, and, and we'll talk about it a bit on a future edition here, if that's okay with her. And uh, also, if you'd like to send us any reports during the week, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. And don't forget, you want to call in next week because we're going to have Rick Hayes on with us. He's going to help you communicate with loved ones who have passed on. So... I mean, uh, this is something that's a, it's a rare opportunity to get to talk to Rick and to make these connections, so uh, make sure that you take full advantage. But now, getting back into the discussion, Tom, about Rhode Island, what is it about Rhode Island's history that you think fosters so much paranormal activity? Or do you think that it's just all around us everywhere and it just seems more, you know, more out on the surface because Rhode Island is a, a smaller state and the reports kind of travel faster? Yeah, basically, Rhode Island is a smaller state. And it is around us everywhere. I mean, every state has its haunts. And Rhode Island seems, because it's a smaller state, and there's more, actually more haunts per capita. But there's another thing about Rhode Island. It has the most cemeteries than any other state in the country. And for what particular reason does it have so many? Well, because most people were buried on their property, their mm -hmm. farms and everything like that. And in the 1800s, garden cemeteries came into vogue. And as we move west, it's around the 1800s, so these large garden cemeteries would be a single giant unit, whereas in uh, little towns like where we come from, Boroughville, I can walk two miles and I pass by seven cemeteries. So, yeah, it's more of these smaller uh, family plot type right. areas. And uh, and it's still a lot of them, um, I assume, must have been related to churches. A lot of churches back then would put them in the in the backyard. 
uh, of these buildings. Uh, is there a lot of those type of structures as well? Uh, not really. Most of them were like on their farms because it was a lot of farmland. So you have there are some churchyard cemeteries, mm-hmm. of course, but a lot of the farmlands buried their kin right there in the middle of the fields. And because a lot of these church ones of uh, today, uh, in, at least around the New England area, a lot of them have moved the. Uh, the bodies and reinterred them at these larger cemeteries built on other locations. Right. So, I mean, whereas these farmland cemeteries are keeping the bodies there, I mean, it'd be it's it's very interesting that they're willing to do that when the option is there now apparently to uh, reinter them at other cemeteries. Yeah, I'm sure were, I'm sure at great cost. Yeah, uh, and uh, there are that does happen occasionally, mm-hmm. but there are like more they're historical cemeteries. So, and the families are still alive, or the ancestry is still running and and so they keep them there and as long as someone takes care of them and a lot of them also have like we did have been just disappeared so no one was there Arlene and I found four cemeteries from the for the historical society that have disappeared in the last hundred years and when with all these uh, you know more graves per capita I guess you could say Mm -hmm. uh, and that does increase the likelihood of paranormal activity if you if you follow along those thought lines but is there something about uh, maybe Rhode Island history, Rhode Island geography, uh, that makes it amplify this this paranormal activity. Oh yeah, well Rhode Island is definitely they were like the last ones to join the Union. They were threatened to be cut off. This they have like this really bad attitude of a rebel attitude. So maybe that carries over, <laughs> you know, like 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 um, Yankee spirit we call it. You know, the, the Yankees and uh, it's just perhaps that it's one of the oldest. Settlements too, and of course being laced with the Indian Wars and uh, all that stuff, and the court that 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 can naturally lend you know some negative energy that could cause residual hauntings. And of course, uh, Rhode Island uh, is is uh, you know we look upon it, Massachusetts snobs kind of look at it upon it as a little brother mm. type of attitude. But it, looking back into the history of it, you know, while Rhode Island was. Uh, I mean, while Massachusetts was stuck in their strict puritanical beliefs, Rhode Island with Roger Williams was a little bit more enlightened and right. a little bit more uh, acceptant of the spiritual than the Puritans were. You know, they were the Puritans didn't want, want to hear this kind of stuff. Oh, right. Yeah, you had Ann Hutchinson and you had uh, uh, Roger Williams. And one year before him, you had William Blackstone, Reverend William, who left Boston because he didn't want to be with all the people and wanted to just have his own library on Study Hill, which is now Cumberland. And it seems like there's more, if there's more, I don't know, freedom of belief, then maybe it's a little bit easier to accept the paranormal and you don't turn a blind eye to it as, you know, I mean, look what happened when there was something slightly, slightly different than the norm here in Massachusetts. You know, we have uh, the black mark on Salem forever. <laughs> yeah. So to have that type of... I don't know, more free-thinking society, it kind of... Actually, they did. They actually thought if they, they believed in ghosts because they thought if a ghost came and was present, that it would meant that they were trying to tell them something, something from beyond. So there was a lot of different things like that in their religious beliefs for Rhode Island that wasn't present anywhere else. And now, of course, uh, moving outside of Rhode Island with your next two books, uh, what are some of the stories that we can expect to hear, if you don't mind giving too much away, oh, in no. uh, mm-hmm. the future books? Well, in New Hampshire, which is coming out now, we have a lot of things that lower New Hampshire is the most haunted because it's the most populated. But we have places from Portsmouth. We have Litchfield, which has the cemetery with no bodies in it, which is kind of weird. And it's actually haunted. I guess the, the, it was across the street, and Merrimack River swelled and took the whole cemetery away. And no bodies were ever recovered, but they were able to recover stones. 
and they made copies of the stones and using the death records, of course. They put the names on it, and people have gone there and gotten EVP recordings and heard things and stuff, even though there's no bodies wow. there. It doesn't mean that nobody is there. <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely changes up a lot of the theories that you hear about uh, cemeteries. Yeah, and there's a uh, Dara Pond where the ghost of a boy can be heard screaming at night. There's the Merrimack has the tortilla restaurant, tortilla flat restaurant, where I actually had a door slam in my face, and I mean hit me in the face, right while nobody was behind it. It just actually cr crushed me between the door jam. <laughs> I couldn't release it. I go to a lot of restaurants and get the door slammed in my face. That's because <laughs> I, I gave them a bad review. But uh, and, and then in Massachusetts, uh, what are some of the... The, maybe in this area, is there anything you focused on, like in the South Coast area for the for the Massachusetts book? We do have some stuff in the uh, Cape area. We have, uh, of course, you have the Bridgewater Triangle. Mm -hmm. You have um, the in Rehoboth, not a nice stuff in Rehoboth. Where is the Orleans Factory, the Palmer Cemetery? There's uh, in the Cape. We did the Beechwood, the Orleans Inn over there, which was really nice, and a few other places. Oh, going all the way up to Provincetown, the Martin House Restaurant, mm -hmm. and the Boston area, of course, you have your Boston haunts you can read about with the uh, two ladies in the Charles Gate Hotel, which I didn't really mention because it's a private condo now. Yeah. I'm still gearing toward places that you can actually visit, and the owners don't mind you visiting. Ed Mass at the Orleans would love to have you. <laughs> <laughs> in the, uh, the few minutes that we have left, we have a phone call here, so let's go to the phones. Good evening, you're on Spooky South Coast uh, with Tom Dagasino. How you doing? Hello. I'd just like to know if all that stuff about ram tail is really true. I've been there myself, and I've experienced some strange things, and, 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 and I'm starting to think it's real. You want to feel that one, Tom? Well, yeah. Actually, I, um, I've had a lot happen there, too. Of course, I've been there about 45 times, and I was there with, uh, again, with Keith and Carl Johnson. And <laughs> Who were they? Yeah, who were they? <laughs> And we would we did one investigation one that they I guess Sandy Johnson got something on a camera, and we saw something glowing way off to the distance. We weren't sure what it was, but everybody kind of was a little unnerved by it. And there's a lot of documentation from even the Hopkins there. Glenn Hopkins, a, a person who lives there, he's told me he's heard the bell ring, and his grandparents used to tell him about it, and he saw stuff down there that he couldn't explain. So, I mean, what I've seen and heard and what other people have seen and heard, it seems that it's very, very legitimate. And, and by the way, call her happy birthday. Thank you. This is Keith. <laughs> oh, Keith, I knew you were. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, I got a quick question for you, totally yeah. off topic. You ever? I, I know that you've done some, some theater work in the past. Yes. Have you ever played the Viking King of Ireland? No, I never have. Okay. That solves a question that I had. I'll share with you <laughs> off the air sometime. All right, great. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Your voice is too uh, conspicuous. Oh, yes, I guess it is. I can't fool you. <laughs> hey, great show, guys. Great Thank show. Thank you time. very much. Excellent. Enjoy, enjoy the last five minutes of your birthday and, and tell Carl the same. I will, too. God bless, guys. Thank you. You, too. Bye-bye. So, Tom, uh, why don't you tell us uh, at least a rough idea, if you have an idea, of when the next two books are coming out. The Haunted New Hampshire will be out in January, and Haunted Massachusetts is slated for May. And then we have one called Pirate Ghosts and Phantom Ships, which is slated for October. Mm. So uh, we'll have to definitely have you back uh, when those books come out, and we'll try to hook it up at Crystal Expectations so you can get out there and, and sign copies of these books. I'm sure they'd love to have you. They, you know, they always say that they, they have uh, you know, a big library of paranormal-related books, but they're always looking for more, so we'll make sure we can get it on the shelves down there. And also, Excellent. how can they get your book, uh, Haunted Rhode Island, at least right now? Haunted Rhode Island is available through Borders Books, 
It's available through Barnes and Noble Books, Amazon.com, and Schifferbooks.com. And uh, and they can contact you uh, through your email address if they want to share any more stories for you. Or? Exactly. Yes, I'm always open to listen to good stories and hear. You know, if people need help, whatever I can do, I'm always available. All right. Well, then we thank you for coming in and joining us. It's always great when we can have somebody in the studio meet face to face, and we can make you have to go out into the field with Matt Moniz. That's that's going to be a paranormal experience like no other. <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah. I'm already scared. He'll start. He'll start speaking Indian into the spirits area. He's great. You never know where he's going to come from. So, uh, an investigator of the top-notch quality. So, so uh, make sure you check out uh, the IPI as well. Uh, we'll have a link up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Don't forget the next three weeks for the rest of 2006. Spooky South Coast is going prime time. Instead of being on at 10 o'clock, you'll hear NFL football at that time. But we'll be on from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. for the next three weeks. Well, we're going to be talking to Rick Hayes, a paranormal communications consultant, next week. You can talk to loved ones who have passed on, share holiday messages. If you have questions that need to be answered, Rick can do it, and he can do it in a pretty pretty discreet way. So he can do it without you know spilling all your family secrets all over the air. Uh, maybe sometimes you want that stuff out all over the air. That's your business. But uh, we invite you to join us next week at 6 p.m. to talk to Rick Hayes. So for this week, I'm Tim Weisberg, Matt Costa. Matt Moniz, we want you all to stay spooktacular. And uh, if you don't catch us prime time, well, then have a happy holiday season, everybody. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy. And what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now. Or at least until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, does it? why no one quite knows the reason but I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart is two sizes too small